Welcome to the podcast of Trinity Presbyterian Church in Owasso, Oklahoma. Our passion is to show that grace changes everything in Jesus Christ by equipping you to rest in worship, grow in community, and rediscover your calling. To join our body in financial support of this ministry, visit our website at trinityowasso.com. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Austin Royal. Uh, I'm the RUF campus minister at the University of Arkansas, and I've been there two years. I've I've been with RUF for six years now. I I was at a school called Austin P. in Clarksville, Tennessee, uh, for four years before I came out to Arkansas. I am married. I've been married 12 years. I have a five-year-old daughter named Lindley. I have a 10-month-old son named Caleb. That's why my wife is not here. Uh, He's awesome. But it's, it's not easy to travel around everywhere with him. Uh, a few things more about me. I, I grew up in Georgia. Uh, I'm from Macon, Georgia. I went to the University of Georgia. That's where I did undergrad. Uh, I did seminary up in Philadelphia at Westminster. And uh, I don't have many Oklahoma connections. These, my Oklahoma connections are twofold. Um, I'm an Atlanta Hawks fan. And Trey Young went to Oklahoma, right? Some of y'all really care about Trey Young. Some of y'all don't care about Trey Young. Some of y'all don't know who he is, and that's okay. I'm a Trey Young fan because I'm a Hawks fan. And then also, my sister Caroline uh, has been the women's director at River Oaks for the past four years, I think, three or four. Um, she just moved to Birmingham, but she's lived in Tulsa the last few years, and so. Uh, those, are, those are my Oklahoma connections. Uh, but happy to be here with you this morning. And this summer, y'all have been going through uh, different psalms, and we'll do the same this morning. We're going to look at Psalm chapter 2. And <clears throat> Psalm t- chapter 2 talks about God in a way that sometimes makes us uncomfortable because it talks about God's wrath. And If you ask even Christians, uh, tell me about God uh, from a biblical perspective, they might try to distinguish the God of the Old Testament from the God of the New Testament. Well, the God of the Old Testament is kind of mean and angry, filled with wrath. He's got a short leash for his people. He tends to punish them a lot. Seems to be pretty judgmental. But then the God of the New Testament, he seems pretty kind. I kind of like him. He's he's loving, and he's gracious, and merciful, and I really like the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament is at least confusing, but most kind of scary, and I don't really know that I want anything to do with him. And they're trying to make a divide between wrath, anger towards sin, and goodness, righteousness, mercy, grace. And we can't do that because if you throw out God's wrath and anger towards sin, you're throwing out his justice, which is good. You're throwing out righteousness, which is good. You're throwing out holiness, which we've sung about multiple times this morning. And you don't want to do that because when you do that, you lose the God of creation. You lose the God of love. And I want want to read a quote from J.I. Packer that says this, God's wrath in the Bible is never the volatile, self-indulgent, irritable, morally dishonorable thing that human anger so often is. 
It is instead a right and necessary reaction to objective moral evil. God is only angry where anger is called for. Even among men, there is such a thing as righteous indignation, though it is perhaps rarely found. But all of God's indignation is righteous. And listen to this. Would a God who took as much pleasure in evil as he did in good be a good God? Would a God who did not react adversely to evil in his world be morally perfect? Surely not. But it is precisely this adverse reaction to evil, which is a necessary part of moral perfection that the Bible has in view when it speaks of God's wrath. God gets angry because he's good. God shows his wrath because he loves justice and mercy. And so I, I hope that as we read this passage now, as it comes into view, we'll have that in the back of our minds because uh, the reality is we want a just, righteous God. And that's how he presents himself. So with that, let me, let me read God's word from Psalm 2. It says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this morning and this passage. And I do pray that you would be seen accurately. Your goodness and your grace, as well as your anger and your wrath. Uh, but I pray, Lord, that ultimately we would see King Jesus, the true King and that we would want to worship him and submit our hearts to him. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, I forgot to talk about RUF at Arkansas real quick. I brought a student camera with me, all-star. Um, and uh, just one quick thing about RUF at Arkansas, and I think many of you know this. Arkansas offers out-of-state in-state uh, in tuition to out-of-state students. There's a lot of students from Oklahoma that come to Arkansas. You probably know some of them. And if you do, I would love for y'all to try to connect me with them. It's just, it's helpful to, to know students who are coming or who are already there and to try to get them connected to RUF. And um, I mean, right now, if, if you combine the, the students from Texas and Oklahoma together, it, it's more students than um, in-state students from Arkansas who are connected to RUF. So probably 15 students from, from Tulsa right now who are involved with RUF. And so I want you to know that the, the ministry does and will impact uh, this city. So 
Uh, with that, uh, I want to tell you a quick story about myself. Uh, my wife and I, Anna Karen, we've been married 12 years. Uh, we had our anniversary a few weeks ago, and something very important, significant happened right after we got married, which was uh, Prince Williams asked his longtime girlfriend, Kate Middleton, to marry him. Uh, it was very important, and I don't know if you thought it was important, but the world thought it was important. Um, and the reality is, if you go into a grocery store right now, or a gas station, you are going to see their face. They are very relevant to the world. And that summer after we got married, I cannot tell you, my last name's Royal, how many people came up to me and said, didn't people know the royal wedding happened last summer? Um, people joking around, I, like, I kind of laughed along with them, um, but I didn't really understand what was going on. I, I kept thinking, why, why do so many people care about a wedding happening on the other side of the ocean between two people they don't know? Why do they care so much? And the answer is kingship. Kings and queens. There's something about that that we are drawn to. Royalty. Tradition. Uh, it pops up everywhere. It pops up in the Paw Patrol show that I watch with my kids. Because that's what 35-year-old men do. And uh, you see it in nearly every Disney movie. It is the theme, and we love it. There's something about it that we want to be connected to. We want to see. We want to be near. And I would actually say there's something deep inside us that wants to be led by it. But that also creates a tension in our own hearts. Because here's the thing. We like kings and queens as long as they stay on the other side of the ocean. Because if they came over here and said, we're going to take Washington and we're going to establish the kingship here, we want nothing to do with that. Because there's something inside us when we hear, oh, one person has the power, that feels oppressive. One person gets to make all the rules? I don't want any part of that. Uh, and it doesn't take much time in looking at human history to see, like, we know absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely, right? So on the one hand, our hearts are drawn to it, and on the other hand, we want nothing to do with it. And there's a problem with that because the Bible presents God as king, the one true king. This passage shows and declares that very clearly, that God is the one true king. And it's not just God, it's his anointed. It's the anointed son. You read this passage, and you see God and his anointed. And the anointing gets called the Son two different times. This psalm is about Jesus. Uh, in, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David, king at the time. He says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom forever. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever and he will be a son to me. God promises there will be a king in Israel who will rule over all things. And we see that in this passage, and guess what? No king of Israel ever did that. 
There never was one. But what's interesting is, and we read this in the, uh, the service earlier, in Acts 4, two chapters after Christ is taken into heaven, ascended into heaven, the disciples are talking about Psalm 2 like it's about Jesus. They're quoting Psalm 2 saying, this psalm is about Jesus. This psalm also is quoted three different times in the book of Revelation. That's drawing us towards the kingdom of heaven and the true king. So all that to say, this passage is about Jesus. The anointed king. It's about the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And it's about the lion who is fierce and will conquer all things. It is about the lion and the lamb. And I pray and hope that you see that this morning. So with that, uh, three things today. Rage against the true king, security of the true king, and then the goodness of the true king. So first, the, the psalm begins with a question. Why do the nations rage? Why do the peoples of the world plot against the Lord and his anointed? Why are they taking counsel against the Lord and his anointed? And the answer is provided in verse 3. It says this, they look at the Lord and his anointed and they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Uh, the kings of the world, the rulers of the world, the peoples of the world, they look at God and they look at his anointed and think, Living and following that God, living for that God looks like slavery. Following that God looks like shackles and chains. His way is going to bring us down. It's going to weigh us down. I want nothing to do with that king. And so I'm going to rage. I'm going to rage against him. This word, think about it, the word choice. Why do the nations rage? What does that mean? I mean... Obviously, what would come to mind is anger. And anger is simply saying, that's not right. I don't like that. That's what your anger is saying. I don't like that. Um, it makes me think of the Hulk, who on the one hand is this normal scientist, right? And then something sets him off, and he begins to turn into this green monster and begins to rage. Why do the nations rage? It's because... They look at God. Uh, they look at the world around them. Um, and something they want feels threatened. Something they think they should have feels threatened. Something they think they deserve feels threatened. And so they respond with rage. Um, do, you, do you ever feel that towards God? You look at him... You look at his laws, you look at his rules, you look at his kingship, and think, that looks like slavery. Like, living for him feels like a huge burden that I don't want to have to bear. Uh, Paul, the New Testament writer, talks about this very thing when he talks about the flesh. The flesh is hostile towards God hostile towards the Spirit. And that is the beauty of salvation in Jesus, is that God puts to death the flesh 
and makes us alive through a spirit. And yet, although the flesh is dead, it's still inside us. And so, too often, we rage against the Lord and against his anointing. Uh, makes me think of a few ordinary moments in my own life. Surely not yours. Maybe not. Um, end of the long day, right? You're tired. All you want to do is sit on the couch, read a book, watch TV, look at your iPhone, and your roommate comes in, or your spouse comes in, or your child comes in, and they ask you a simple question for help. Can you come help me with this? And something in that moment about your response your tone of voice, the look you give them, lets them quickly know they should not be asking you for help. They should not be approaching you in this time where you are trying to relax and do what you want to do. Something comes out of you that says, this isn't right. Don't ask me for help right now. Uh, there's a guy named Paul David Tripp who talks about little kingdoms the little kingdoms of one that we try to build into a kingdom that we want everyone to revolve around us. He calls it the costume kingdom. We masquerade around as if we're kings and queens thinking the world should revolve around us, that we can make our own rules. And when we live into that, we look at the true king and think, I don't want to live the way he's called me to. The law of liberty that he talks about, the law of freedom, Peace, patience, kindness. I don't have time for that right now. Uh, it makes me think of when I get into my car and all of a sudden the road becomes my domain and I think I can do whatever I want. And people should follow my rules. Like I can get mad at people who don't turn their blinker on when I want them to. I can get frustrated with people who cut me off, who speed past me too fast, who go too slow. I have the right to get frustrated with them. Uh, it makes me think of parenting my children in the ways that they are a threat to my moments of peace and quiet. They're a threat to my time and energy. Uh, they're a threat to my walls and furniture. And what comes out of me in that moment is often rage instead of the values of the true king. And that's what happens. We get shaped by what we think our little kingdom should look like. And the values come out in all these different moments. And the true king is calling us to actually live for him. To acknowledge that his kingdom and his kingship is better. Uh, this word for rage, maybe you're thinking, I don't rage like that. This word for rage actually means noisily assembles. Why do the nations noisily assemble? And I think what it's actually drawing at is why is there so much organized chaos in the world? And maybe a better way to put it is why are the nations in such a deep place of reckless unrest? Why is there so much reckless unrest in the world? And it is because there are so many threats to your life, to what you value, to what you think you need. And you have to try to protect it. And you are in a state of constant reckless unrest because you are not trusting the true king. You're pushing your kingdom forward instead of calling his kingdom come. What does it look like to trust 
and live for the true king. Because the true king says, I am the prince of peace. The true king says, I am the God of all comfort. Come to me. The true king says at the end of this passage, talking about his wrath and anger towards sin, come and take refuge in me. What does it look like to take refuge in the king? That leads us to the second point, which is the security of the true king. God sees all this raging. He sees the world, the peoples of the world, the kings and the councils of the world plotting against them. And what comes out of them? Verse 4 tells us he, he laughs. He, he looks at these kingdoms and he laughs. And I, that is intended to make us feel small. It is a belittling, mocking laugh towards the kingdoms of the world. He's, he's looking at it and saying, y'all's kingdoms sort of resemble a kingdom, but it's, it's light. It doesn't hold much weight. It's, it's like light salad dressing. It sort of resembles the thing you want, but it's not the real thing. It doesn't pack the same punch. It's like beer. It's like, it's not really what you want. It sort of looks like it, but it can't hold the same weight. Doesn't taste the same. Doesn't look the same. He laughs, but he doesn't just laugh. He actually, he looks at his enemies and he begins to speak. He looks at them. He says this, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. God, the true king, looks at all these masquerading kingdoms and says, My throne is set. He's saying my throne, the foundation of it, is completely secure. So all your little kingdoms that are fighting against it, I'm not threatened by them. They don't make me feel insecure. Uh, when, when someone wins a championship, I'm, I'm looking up in a banner. I don't see any championships, so I'm guessing the sixth graders have not won a championship here. <laughs> but you walk into a gym, and you can point to the year we won the championship. Oklahoma softball apparently is amazing at softball. They've won two years in a row. This year, they successfully defended their title. And they're going to have to do it again next year and the year after that. And there are so many times where the team that won the championship the year before doesn't win it the next year. Georgia football gets to do that next year. It's going to be awesome. Um, Oklahoma football has not won it in a long time. There's all these champions and then they're not. And God is saying, my kingdom, my throne is set and secure, and I don't have to defend it. I will reign forever. And that means a few things for us. One, it means we have great hope against the evils of this world, the brokenness of this world. We have great hope in the power of the resurrection that God is making all things new, that he has overcome sin and death. The evil is not the final word. And so we take much hope in that and security of it. And this is what it also means. It means God is not overwhelmed by the things that overwhelm you. God is not undone by the things that undo you. These moments where you feel like the world is going to crush you, 
God is safe and secure, and he lends himself to you. It's the connection with the refuge. You don't have a refuge apart from him, but you have a refuge in him. So God is not undone by the things that undo me. What does that mean? It means <clears throat> when you wake up at 9 a.m. in the morning, wait, no, we're adults. We get up before 9 a.m. Um, when you wake up in the morning, Monday morning, and uh, you're reading your Bible, maybe you're listening to some hymns, and it's just a great, glorious morning, and you're enjoying it. And then your children wake up at 9 a.m., and they ate breakfast, and things seem to be going well, and then all of a sudden, something happens that sets a few chain reactions off to where by the time it's 9.45 or 10, it feels like you've lived a 12-hour day trying to manage your kids, and you are undone and have no idea how you're going to get to bedtime. You feel undone and overwhelmed and have no idea how you're going to make it through the rest of your day. What do you do? What do you turn to? What do you turn to when you get the phone call with the bad news? The unexpected thing happens. The unexpected diagnosis comes. What do you do? Sometimes you are not raging, but you feel the effects of the world raging around you. And it feels like it's going to break you. Uh, what do you do when you have the unexpected thing that happens at work, and all of a sudden you're questioning your job security and your finances two months down the road, and you don't know what you're going to turn to? Uh, or the moments where you continually are asking God for help. You're asking God for something He has said in His Word is good, and He gives His children. And for some reason, you keep asking and asking and asking, and He won't give it to you. Where do you go? Uh, when we lived in Clarksville, Tennessee, that's where I was doing RUF before Arkansas, we purchased a house, and the guy said, uh, this is a great house to storm watch in. And I was like, all right, I don't know what that means, but sounds cool. Um, but it, it turned out to be very true. There was this big back porch that was covered, and it was on about three acres of land that were, were lined with trees, and we were down at the end of a big hill. And storms and uh, Clarksville, they just raged. They cut through with wind and rain, wind coming in 60, 70 miles an hour, like four, five, six times a year. I mean, I'm sure Oklahoma, I feel like Oklahoma might have storms like that. Um, but you watch a storm at this house, and it's, it's amazing because there's these enormous trees, and the wind is hitting the top of them, and it looks like every gust of wind is going to break the trees in half. The wind is cutting through. The rain is hitting it hard. Leaves are falling off. Limbs are falling off. They're bending over in half. And then somehow, they stand back up. And you keep thinking, the next gust of wind is going to take these trees down. It's going to rip them in half. Rip them out of the earth. And they keep standing up. How do they do that? It, it's not their leaves. It's not the bark on the tree. It's not the limbs. It, it is roots sucked deep, sunk deep into the tree's only hope for life. The trees stay up, 
stand up because their roots are sunk deep into their only hope, which is to cling to the earth, to cling to its only source of life. How do we stay upright? How do we not turn in rage when we feel the rage of the world around us? It is our hearts, the roots of who we are, our life sunk deep into our only hope, sunk deeply into Jesus. The God who says, I am the anchor of your soul. The God who says, you need help, and I am a great helper. Roots sunk deep into him. This isn't let go and let God, by the way. It can't be. Let go and let God is like, oh, God, you take this. I'm going to pretend to put faith in you, and you just go off and do your own thing. Sinking your roots into Jesus is clinging to him, grasping for him, holding to him. That's the only way. And we throw out these platitudes and this offering of faith, and then we go and rage. And Jesus is like, no. Your only refuge, your only hope is in me. Come and sink your roots deeply into me. Lay down your little kingdom and come and live in light of mine. This is a psalm that is slowly backing us into a corner of of submission to Jesus, of living for the true king, of putting our hopes and trust, our refuge outside of this world into something greater and more beautiful because our kingdoms won't last. They can't. Uh, It leads me to the last point, the goodness of the true king. Uh, If you look at this passage, you know, I could have said the end of it is kind of like a warning, um, but what I see at the end is goodness, and I hope you do too, because what what you see in this psalm, you might think, you see, the nations are raging, the people are raging, but God's kind of raging right back, right? I mean, it's talking about his anger. It's talking about his fury. It's talking about how his wrath is quickly kindled. Isn't God just raging right back? And the answer is, God is secure. He doesn't have knee-jerk reactions. He doesn't feel threatened. He thinks clearly. And so, he doesn't feel threatened. His, his anger and wrath are, are not out of insecurity are not out of feeling powerless. Uh, They're actually out of a place of goodness and grace. And look at verses 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. God looks at his enemies and what does he do? He, he calls them to wisdom. He calls them to receive his wisdom. God looks at his enemies, and he calls them to come and kiss the sun. Come and follow me. Come and trust me. Come and love me. Lay down your kingdom. And this is what's happening in this moment. God, God is shooting up warning shot after warning shot to people who are at war with him. To people who are attacking him, who are raging against him, God continually is just shooting up warning shots, saying, no, 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 you don't want to do this. Come over here. It's better over here. 
It's after grace upon grace. It's after the offer of mercy. It's after the offer of come and be a part of my family over and over and over and over again that's continually rejected where God swiftly and quickly will show his wrath and anger and justice. But it is not until his grace and mercy have been pushed up to the table and offered to be received that he does that. He shoots warning shots to those who are at war against him. I'm going to close with this because this, this draws us to the goodness of Jesus. When you look at the world, you look at history, you look at the kings of the world, it is not uncommon to see a king who knows he's lost the battle, who knows he's lost the war, to kill himself. That's what you see in the first king of Israel, Saul. Saul knew he was done, and he killed himself. Hitler knew he was done, and he killed himself. Why do they do that? It's because it's two reasons. They don't want to have to be made fun of, made sport of by their enemies, to face the mock, mockery and the ridicule of their enemies. But they also don't want to have to go to their people and say, I'm not who I promised I would be. I'm not what I said I would be. I can't fulfill all the things I promised you. And instead of facing that shame, instead of facing that moment of ridicule, they lay on their sword. Because they don't want to have to say, I'm not who I said I was. And the, the true king does the exact opposite. Because of love for his people, he lays down his glory. He lays down his crown. He puts himself, removes himself from a place of security, complete power into a place where he can be hurt, killed. He falls on the sword of God's wrath. Jesus does. But the true king falls on the sword of God's wrath out of love for his people. To say, I am who I said I was. King of all creation, and lover of your soul. And so you can trust me. You can live for me. You can follow me. Because I love you. And I will take the wrath of God upon me. And you can receive mercy and grace. And I pray that you would. That you would see King Jesus. And you would rest and find refuge for your soul in him. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Trinity, please visit our website at trinityowasso.com.